Hey guys, I hope everybody's doing well. It's Dr. Chloe here, and today's conversation is super exciting. I am talking to Dr. Dave Rabin, who is the founder of Apollo Neuro, which is a really incredible company that has a wearable device that helps regulate your nervous system in so many different ways. Remy and I have been absolutely loving it. But beyond that, he's also an expert in psychedelics and using psychedelics for mental health care. And I really found this conversation so interesting. I was kind of blown away. I totally was fangirling over all of this information and the the potential for what we can use psychedelic sport in terms of the mental health field is just truly incredible. He has a podcast called The Psychedelic Report. I highly, highly recommend you guys check it out. He's so knowledgeable. His guests are so informative. And the research coming out on this, as you will hear more in this podcast, is absolutely tremendous. So it's super duper cool. Please go check it out and follow him. Um, Dr. Dave, thank you so much for joining me. It's such an honor to have you here. Um, One of the things that I was most curious about is how you ended up on the path of studying psychedelics. What drew you to this line of field in your industry? Hey guys, it's Dr. Chloe, and I just wanted to come on and give you a quick thank you. Your support over season one of the podcast has been incredible, and I'm so so very grateful for each and every one of you. It really means the world to me. We are currently taking a short break while we regroup and reorganize for season two, and I can't wait to get new episodes out to you soon. I also want to let you all know that I am creating a new community in school, S-K-O-O-L, so check the link in the show notes. You can sign on and join the group for free for the next month. And in there, I'm going to be uploading a couple of different courses that I've put together in order to help you optimize your health and the health of your family so that you can really feel empowered in making the decisions that you need to when it comes to your healthcare journey, whether it's the food that you're eating at home or the work that you're doing with a practitioner. So check it out. I'm really excited to be able to connect more directly with you all there. And I'm excited that it's going to be free for the time being. And you'll be grandfathered into that if you sign up now. So check it out and I will see you there. I hope everybody's doing wonderfully and I'll talk to you soon. So when I was actually in medical school, this is going back to 2012. Actually, before that, I was always interested in consciousness and meaning making and and sort of this idea of like, what drives us, what makes us sick, and then what makes us really excel and reach our full potential as human beings. Because we see that when we look at what people go through in their lives and the challenges that people face, oftentimes it's the same kinds of things that make us sick and that actually make us really, really strong and help us to find our potential. It's it's challenge, right? And if we're not challenged, and especially if we're not challenged, then we often don't grow. And one of the key factors that stood out to me in that was safety. If you're challenged in a safe environment, then you're much more likely to excel and actually develop and grow in a positive direction and constructive direction as to your full humanness that you can achieve in this life. And if you're challenged in unsafe or multiple unsafe environments without support, then we often don't and we get stifled or or um, squelched. Our potential really doesn't bloom. And so that always interested me. But I, you know, I was always just pursuing that. And then uh, I thought I was, I would always, I've been studying chronic stress for, as a, as a physician and neuroscientist for probably the better part of 20 years. Um, and 
I was really interested in this performance and recovery stuff. And so I started studying uh, dementia and age-related disorders originally. So chronic stress with aging on the cellular and molecular level. And I was planning to actually pursue neurology or ophthalmology, vision science as my primary specialty because that was most of the research I was doing, which was really fascinating to me. But then in 2012, I had a really great friend who I was spending a lot of time with, a fellow medical student, um, who knew that she wanted to be a psychiatrist forever. And she kept telling me over and over again, whenever we'd hang out, she's like, Dave, you'd make a great psychiatrist. But at that time in the field of medicine, psychiatry was really discouraged. Uh, as it wasn't looked down upon. And of course, it wasn't discouraged amongst the psychiatry folks, but a lot of the other medical field just kind of talked about psychiatry as guesswork medicine. And that was not something that was particularly interesting to me. But in that year, uh, my friend, I was about to finish medical school and choose my specialty, which at which point it's very hard to switch to another and you have to redo training and all that. And so I was kind of waiting because I was uncertain about what I wanted to do. And then my, my friend sent me, uh, my medical school friend sent me 10 or 12 of the leading publications that had come out in the psychedelic space over the last prior 15 years. And as I was reading through these publications, which I'd never seen before, from people like Matt Johnson and Roland Griffiths and Robin Card Harris, these folks, I saw the incredible, uh, incredible science they were doing. And it was like top tier science published in top tier scientific journals. And it really highlighted this potential of paradigm shifting treatments that were entering into mental health that were inducing long term healing health outcomes that were very significant long-term remission in some cases with people with severe mental illness who hadn't responded to anything else with just a few treatments and psychotherapy. And when I saw that, it was just everything kind of coalesced together for me. And it was like, okay, now I can fulfill my passion of studying consciousness and meaning making and resilience, but in the context of the field of psychiatry, because the field of psychiatry is clearly transforming before my eyes. Uh, and within 36 hours of reading those papers, I knew I was going to be a psychiatrist and I went that path and I started studying psychedelics. That's amazing. I love that. It's always so funny. I mean, with Chinese medicine, one of my teachers would always say like, it's, you know, it, it absolutely has to be a calling. Otherwise, it's just never going to work because it's so hard. And I feel like something like this like comes along and like once you know it's right, <laughs> like you just have to jump into it and you're like, this is it. Um, I also think that, you know, one of the reasons I'm doing the podcast is looking to find ways that we can be more resilient and also looking at the ways in which, you know, the reasons in that we are having such massive health crises in our society and what we can do, you know, on an individual level and particularly in our homes and particularly with our children in order to start shifting that dynamic and then start making change outwards as opposed to looking for the powers that be to change <laughs> that does not seem very likely at this juncture. Uh, so I love what you're doing. Um, so tell me a little bit about, so one of the things I'm pretty obsessed with is this idea of building mental health and mental resilience. How are you seeing these psychedelics work within the brain? And obviously each of them has different pathways, but what are you, what are you working with the most? Is there one psychedelic that you're exploring the most or how's How's that looking? Yes. So psychedelics are complicated to study right now from a legal perspective because the only legal psychedelic medicine that's available to us as licensed clinicians in practice is ketamine. And ketamine is one of the most unusual psychedelics of all of them. 
Uh, it was originally discovered for anesthetic purposes or pain relief purposes. Um, and it was found to be a very gentle but extremely effective and quick-acting anesthetic that was used, most people think it was first used with animals, but it was actually used to evacuate wounded soldiers from war um, and the battlefield to reduce shock. Because if you start thinking about how you've just been shot, when you're shot, then you'll bleed out really quick and your chances of survival decrease dramatically. But if you get a shot of ketamine and you go and you dissociate from your pain and the fact that you've been shot, then you actually have a chance of getting, you know, picked up and dragged to survive to, to survival and to a medic um, and to be saved. So that was a huge uh, way that ketamine was used. And then it was also used in the OR uh, for anesthesia. And, and this is both at much higher doses than we use with people for mental health issues. I think it was first observed to have mental health uh, implications in the eight, eight, late 80s and 90s. Um, but wasn't actually used on mass for depression and PTSD until more recently in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, so ketamine is the main focus and I am a ketamine assisted psychotherapy trained practitioner. That's a big part of my clinical practice. And I also train other clinicians to do that work. Um, but I'm also trained in the MAPS MDMA therapy protocol. And while we can't yet uh, administer MDMA in the clinic to our patients for PTSD, MDMA just completed phase three trials, which is very exciting. And we just did an expose on that called Your Brain Explained, um, which you can find also on Spotify and, and uh, Apple Music. And uh, it really breaks down what it means that M and how MDMA works to induce these rapidly and radically transformative healing experiences for people who have never responded to any other treatment. And, um, they, and, they, and they work in different ways. And... Do you want me to dive into like more deeply into the mechanism? Oh, I definitely want to hear about the mechanism. <laughs> yes. So, so interestingly, you know, these are both what many ketamine and MDMA are both what many people would call atypical psychedelics. MDMA stands for 3,4-methylene dioxymethamphetamine. It is very much a methamphetamine analog, um, but like a methamphetamine, it induces release of. Uh, neurotransmitters like serotonin, norepinephrine, um, and many others in the brain rapidly. And MDMA is different than standard amphetamines like Adderall or Ritalin or methamphetamine or crystal meth because it induces that burst release of serotonin and other neurotransmitters specifically in the emotional cortex of the brain, which rapidly increases feelings of safety, empathy, introspection, self-reflection, looking inside ourselves. And another another term that we don't commonly use in our day-to-day -day lives, but it's very important, and it's called interoception, the awareness of our bodies. And so MDMA has become a very interesting tool because uh, people who have very severe trauma and severe PTSD, like the folks in the MAPS MDMA FDA trials with 17.6 years of untreatable PTSD are responding with like an 88% response rate. 67% are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD after just three doses of MDMA and 12 weeks of treat of therapy in the most recent phase three trial, which is astounding. And I just want to reiterate that you, you said 77% with three doses. 
67% no longer meet diagnostic criteria after three doses and and 42 hours of psychotherapy over 12 weeks. That's the most- I mean, like, like intractable cases also, right? For the most part, yes. Yeah. Pretty astounding. Just to get it. Yeah, it's astounding. I mean, just to put that in perspective, this is one of, this is the most effective treatment for any psychiatric disorder with the highest response rates of any treatment we have ever seen in the history of psychiatry. So that's a real big deal. Uh, and the fact that it's just three doses separated over, you know, two weeks apart, over 12 weeks with a whole bunch of therapy involved really speaks to, and the fact that people get better after the treatment is stopped and more people continue to get better, which has also never been seen before in psychiatry, is really paradigm shifting. Uh, and I think it really helps us understand what the ancient forefathers of Western medicine and Eastern and tribal medicine have been talking about for thousands of years. Hippocrates and Maimonides were two of the Western medicine forefathers. And then going back to Eastern and tribal culture, they all have talked about this. And what they talk about is that the source of healing for any illness, has, especially chronic illnesses, must come from the person seeking to be healed, right? We have to look inward to heal ourselves. And that's where the source of our healing comes from. It doesn't come from out here. Out here is where we have tools and we have help and guides and people who help steer and facilitate and get us on track. But the actual healing part comes from within us. And the current medical paradigm with, with medications like SSRIs and antipsychotics and methamphetamine drugs and other things that you take one or multiple times a day every day do help some people. There's no doubt about that, but there's a lot of side effects uh, oftentimes, and they do something psychologically to the patient that is very complicated to treat, which is it associate, it creates an association between me needing something outside of myself that I must rely on every day to make, get, achieve and maintain my treatment outcomes. And even the studies show that if you stop taking your SSRIs with depression, chances are you're going to relapse and you're going to continue to relapse even more every time you relapse again. And every time you stop taking your medicine, your relapses can get worse and become more frequent. And that's a really discouraging statistic for people. And it's not really the goal because the goal of our treatment is to facilitate people healing themselves and getting better long-term, not making them reliant on stabilization medication, which is effectively what the field has been focused on since the advent of biological psychiatry in the 70s and 80s. Um, so that is really the paradigm shift that we're facing right now, which is extremely exciting. It's amazing. I mean, what you're talking about in terms of the efficacy and the safety is just mind blowing. And then to add to what you're saying, I completely agree in terms of empowering patients to take control of their health and be aware that their bodies have the capacity to heal instead of relying on an outward, you know, drug or pharmaceutical or or even doctor, you know, long term. You know, that's one of the things I always say to my patients. You know, they're always like, so you want me to come back every week? I'm like, I don't want to see you. I love you. Get the fuck out. Go and enjoy your life. Like, I want you to do well. Check back in. Like, let's see how you're doing and make sure you're still on like the path towards healing. But I want you to take accountability for your health through the actions that you take day by day. Um, and I think you recognize that you're like the, you're like the featured act, right? You're if, if the healing is a, is the show of our lives for many of us, right? You're the, you're the 
the leading performer, the leading actor in it, right? And that's, and you're the driver. We want you to feel empowered at the center of that experience. And going back to what I kind of touched on just briefly earlier that you really wanted to hear about, which is the mechanism, almost all studies of psychedelics have looked at how they're all different. And they are different, molecularly speaking. But what's really interesting about them is their similarities. Their similarities are much more interesting than their differences. And the similarities are what I just mentioned earlier, which is they all help in seemingly, regardless of their different uh, molecular uh, appearance and the way they act on the brain, they all seem to induce a state of consciousness when delivered in this safe relationship that we have with our doctor-patient relationship or our clinician-therapist-patient relationship, or even with a lineage-trained shaman, they have this incredible power to restore agency and autonomy to the individual in their own healing experience. And that's regardless of the molecular composition of the medicine. It's still amplifying the therapy experience by amplifying the safety pathways in the brain, making us effectively feel and remember that we're safe enough to heal and allow that process to jumpstart on its own. I love that. That's I, that's one of the things I even say about CBD, and I know you study cannabis a lot as well. Um, but you know, CBD, I always tell people it's like it gives you some space in order to heal and in order to start enacting some of these, you know, positive activities towards health and towards mindfulness. Um, it's not like an overnight game changer. It's not a one size fits all or whatever. Um, I'm curious, do you guys, what kind of psychotherapy are you doing? Are you like, I've been, I've been in EMDR for a while and I love that. I'm obviously an acupuncturist and doctor of Chinese medicine. I know a lot of practitioners who are looking into getting licensed and looking into the regulations in terms of how we could potentially use psychedelics to support our treatments. Um, and I think there's some beautiful synergy there in terms of, you know, obviously the knowledge that Chinese medicine has about the body and the body storing trauma and how it all integrates together and how we can move things through the body, through energy work or needles or whatever. But I'm curious how you guys are, are stacking it sort of with the therapy and how that's working. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm more traditionally, like I, I'm more trained in traditional Western psychotherapy techniques, but I have studied South American tribal uh, medicine techniques. And so I pull a lot of indigenous uh, Shipibo practices into my practice because I find them to be they're all, when I went down, when I went and studied with them, everything was about repairing and rebuilding self-trust as a way to heal trauma. And that just really resonated with me. And their techniques are so simple. It's, they basically, when I went, when I went down there, the thing that stuck with me the most is they have these four practices that have now become central to our practice, which is what they call the four pillars. I, we call, I call them the four pillars of self-trust, which are self-gratitude, self-forgiveness, self-compassion, and self-love. And if you practice those things every day, even just saying them to yourself or writing those words down, you don't have to do anything else, but just saying those things and writing those words down, it puts them into our consciousness and helps us focus on them as a priority. And once you start doing that regularly, number one, it makes us realize how little we do that. And number two, it actually repairs and rebuilds and strengthens our foundation of self-trust, which is the foundation of healing. So that is a really great tool that I love to use. And then, um, and then of course, I do bring in a lot, of, a lot of techniques from Eastern and Ayurvedic and yogic practices and breathwork techniques in those practices, but I'm not trained in Chinese medicine or acupuncture or anything like that. So I don't, I don't do that kind of work, 
for good reason. Um, but I think it's very, I think it's very effective and body work, uh, in general, like shiatsu and acupressure techniques, I think can be really powerful to help release, uh, tension and, tr and trauma that's stored in the body before, during, and after psychedelic experiences. And even in the MAPS trial, they teach uh, consensual, gentle bodywork techniques that can be used with MDMA uh, therapy that are very effective and, and very useful. Um, my, my practices are mainly about um, how do I motivate you to want to heal and participate in your own experience. And then once you're mo which is called motivational interviewing. And number two, how do I, which is really, it's a really cool technique. Um, we, maybe we can talk about later. And then number two is once you're motivated to do this work, because it's not, it's not always easy and it's often not easy. Then once you're motivated, how do I give you a framework of understanding, feeling, and behavior that helps you to have like a complete view of where you're going. Like where is the path and how is it, how, how is it sus, sus, uh, sustained for you, right? Because we all have these different paths and that like life is like, there's like the same path we always walk, which we, we could call our habits, right? And then there's every other path you could take and there's like infinite paths. So how do you know that you're on that path that's leading you to healing? Well, you give people an understanding of what that path looks like, and then you give them an understanding of what it feels like, safety, and then you give them an understanding of what techniques to do, which are mainly cognitive behavioral therapy techniques that work really well and are tried and true for P everything from PTSD to anxiety and OCD and depression and insomnia. And we, when P but those require a little bit more effort. So we usually start with the feeling and the understanding. And then when people are asking for, they're saying, hey, what can I do? what can I do? I'm ready, doc. And then we're like, oh, well, by the way, I have all these techniques that you can do. And these techniques on a daily basis, which take no more than five minutes a day, just help you stay on that path and retrain and rewire your brain to reinforce what you're learning from these experiences and prepare you to go in. So your body's like more ready for the process that happens with healing. Um, which again, just like, just like fixing a broken leg or a bad cut in the ER, it always hurts before it feels better right? Like Mike and Annie Minhoffer have a great, the, some of the leading trainers at MDMA therapy for MAPS. They, Mike used to be uh, an ER doc. It always hurts when you're cleaning the wound and when you're sewing it up before it feels better. So we'll, we do everything we can as a therapist to help decrease that pain and discomfort. But you have to expect there's going to be some of that because you're opening, you're reopening a wound. So it's really, you know, making sure that people understand this is treating mental and emotional injury is no different than treating physical injury. It's the exact same thing. It's just, we're doing psychosurgery, they're doing physical surgery, and we have to, you know, not ignore the fact that there's an exposed and possibly festering gangrenous wound down here in your emotional body that hasn't been addressed. And we're going to address it, we're going to get to the bottom of it, and we're going to get you in and through. I love it. Um... Yeah, it's really, it is a wild ride being a human. So I want to, I want to get to Apollo Neuro because I think that it's a really, really fascinating device and something that people will be really interested in, especially parents who are dealing with stress or even kids who are dealing with stress and irritation focus issues, which is so prominent right now. But just one last thing, I would, I'm just curious, what 
Like, what do you, where do you see the psychedelic sort of revolution headed? And what would be your dream for the next five to 10 years in terms of where this research is going and what we might be able to see clinically and in our population? I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about Radical Roots. So I founded this company when my son Remy was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder and intractable epilepsy. As a doctor of Chinese medicine, I knew that the best way to support his complex neurological and physiological needs would be through dynamic Chinese herbal formulas. I also started studying the incredible effects of hemp and its ability to support and regulate the brain and the body. By combining targeted Chinese herbal formulas with complete spectrum hemp and using a unique alchemical spagyric extraction technique, we have created formulas that are true game changers. Honestly, I truly believe that these are some of the most powerful herbal formulas on the market. Please check out RadicalRootsHerbs.com, use the code RADREMEDY, and get 15% off your first order. I'm so, so proud of these, and I think you guys are going to love them as much as I do. So I think there's a lot happening, and I, I can't summarize it all for you, but I can tell you what most excites me, which is that we just, is it up until this point, we haven't had any understanding of, of in large part, how these medicines are inducing this long-term improvement in people and how to measure that without just surveys, right? All, almost all of these studies of people with psychedelics have just been survey-based outcome, outcomes, and that's fine, but we need objective measures. We need ways to actually, actually track people on their healing journey. Where are they when they start? Where are they along the way? And are are they moving in the direction we want them to, or maybe not? Um, because not everybody responds, even though lots of people respond, not everybody responds the same, and some people do better than others. And it's arguably a very expensive treatment. So we need better information about this, and the insurance companies are demanding it to reimburse it. So effectively, insurance companies want to know before we spend ten to $14,000 on your ketamine or your MDMA therapy experience, we want to know that there's a really good chance that you're going to respond and not be a not responder. Even if there's only 12% not responders, we want to know that there's a really good chance you're going to be in that 88% responder group. So back in 2016, I started a study group um, with Rick Doblin's blessing, to uh, with, which is a collaboration between MAPS, Yale, um, the Board of Medicine, our nonprofit medical board, um, Modern Spirit, uh, Joe Tuffworth's uh, nonprofit, and uh, USC and Arizona State University to evaluate some of these biological characteristics that were happening and might be changing with psychedelic treatment. And we started out working with MAPS because MAPS has uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies that's been pioneering and pushing MDMA through uh, the FDA trials for PTSD. Um, they have the most con highly controlled environment for people to experience MDMA therapy, this three doses in 12 weeks, and they're seeing these incredible response rates. And so we thought, well, if we're, if we know, so uh, if we know that MDMA is clinically reversing the symptoms of trauma in 67% of people within 12 weeks or so, and that number increases over time after treatment has stopped, which is very unusual, can we measure that by looking at the DNA? Can we measure it by looking at what's happening to cortisol receptor genes 
as one example that we know are being modified with, I don't want to get too complicated, but they're epigenetics with a code on top of the cortisol gene that tells it to turn up an expression or turn down an expression is being modified, which is called methylation. And this happens in our genes all the time, every moment of every day. But we know that this one specific gene, one specific cortisol receptor gets hypermethylated, which decreases its activity in people who have had PTSD. So MAPS has all these PTSD participants who have had treatment-resistant PTSD for over a decade, going through their trials in this highly controlled setting with just MDMA. And so we said, can we collect some of their DNA samples from saliva, just have them spit into a cup before their treatment and spit into a cup after their 12 weeks? And we'll see if the markings on their cortisol receptor genes that were caused by trauma are actually changing after the treatment because they're clinically getting better. So we should see something. And that study was just published in Frontiers in Psychiatry five years later um, in this past February. And we actually found it. And we saw that MDMA-assisted therapy over 12 weeks is not just clinically reversing trauma in these people, short and long-term, long-term being a year, but we're seeing that it's actually reversing the epigenetic markings that are on these cortisol receptor genes that are caused by trauma. And the kicker is the amount of change to that cortisol receptor is directly proportionate to the amount of clinical outcome. Wow, that's amazing. So what that means is that we can start, this is the first study of its kind to look at this and actually show this kind of result. And it's just the first, so there's gonna be a lot more before we actually get to what we can do in five to 10 years. But what this means is that we have an objective biomarker that can be assessed by you spitting into a cup when you go into your psychiatrist's office, that in five to 10 years, you'll go and you'll do, you'll say, hey, I'm, I'm not feeling good, doc. And they'll be like, okay, let's do the depression workup, let's do PTSD workup, they'll ask you all the questions. And then they'll say, spit into this cup. <laughs> and then they'll run your epigenetic code. They'll come back to you like two weeks later or whatever. This is probably gonna be in the five to 10 year range. And rather than saying, you're now what they do for everybody, which is now here's your SSRI or whatever, you know, multiple drugs or psychotherapy for the next, yeah, you know, <laughs> your whole, yeah for your whole life, right? Here's this drug you're probably gonna have to take forever. Now, five to 10 years from now, we can envision a future where they're going to hand, the doctor's going to hand you a prescription to remission, right? So they're going to say within, within 42, within 12 weeks, 42 hours of psychotherapy and three doses of MDMA, you have a 95% chance of no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD, right? For depression could be, you, you do their sample within 20 weeks and 12 doses of ketamine, you had 95% chance to get to remission. And nothing could be more hopeful for people than that because that is really the paradigm shift, right? That goes from you're going to be sick for life, drugs for life, to you actually have a hope of curing this. And it starts to invite something that's controversial but important to talk about, which is like what we were talking about back in the 40s and 50s, right when antibiotics were invented and infections were, were terminal illnesses, right? Now, you know, we, that when antibiotics were invented, we're curing infections all of a sudden, right? People aren't having syphilis for life. It's incredible. 
And now we can do that. And we're starting to do that with psychedelics and we can measure it. So people and the field as a whole can start to have hope around using the cure word for mental health and mental illness. And that is the thing that I am personally most excited about. It's truly mind-blowing. I mean, I've had so many patients and friends who have struggled so severely with mental illness with, you know, as you said, sometimes SSRIs and pharmaceuticals can be helpful. You know, I I see much greater change when people are more empowered through Chinese medicine, mind-body medicine, you know, taking control of their health through their diet, exercise, lifestyle stuff. Obviously, that's going to, what I see is a, a much more long-term change uh, that's much more sustainable. But I've also seen SSRIs absolutely demolish people's mental health and cause severe suicidal ideations and then also really dangerous cocktails being prescribed to patients um, that are very terrifying as a practitioner and as a human to see the, the impacts of these on society. So to think that some of these people who are dealing with these really severe cases, I mean, you know, how many homeless veterans are on the street these days, you know, dealing with PTSD. We, we send these men and women off to war, you know, whatever your politics are, they're going in order to do something that they believe is good. Um, and they come back and they're traumatized and don't have any support system. Um, so it's, it's incredible to think of what this might be able to do for our society long-term. And it's really, really exciting. Um, all right, we don't have that much time left, so let's get to Apollo. So tell me about Apollo. Why did you make it? What does it do? Who is it good for? Let's get it. <laughs> uh, it's a great segue that when you mentioned veterans because Apollo is a wearable technology. I'm wearing it on my chest here, but you can wear it anywhere on your body. And it, well, it actually came from my work with veterans at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Psychiatry. And we were just seeing so many veterans not getting better with the treatments we were taught to use. And so like over 70% of people were not getting better long-term with our current treatments. And so it just forced me to look outside the box and try to, as a researcher and a clinician, try to figure out, well, what else out, is out there? Of course, that led me to uh, everything under the sun, like biofeedback and meditation, mindfulness and yoga and the, the Eastern and Chinese practices and the tribal practices, but it also led me to MDMA therapy. And when I got trained in MDMA therapy in 2016, what I witnessed was effectively what the clinic, what the animal studies were showing, which is that MDMA seems to work by amplifying, molecularly amplifying the safety pathways in the emotional brain. And that PTSD in, in almost in, in its entirety is a disorder of a dysregulated fear response in us. And so what heals overwhelming fear? Safety, overwhelming safety. And that's what it seemed that MDMA was doing. So I went back to the lab after I did my training and I took that with me. When we were, we were all taught in our, psych, in our psychiatry and mental health training, and even in medical school, that the safe, trusting relationship, which we call the clinician-patient alliance, is the single foundation of healing for people. So that was already kind of seeded within me. But when I saw MDMA working, I was like, this is just a that's like this on steroids. It's like a super amplification of the therapy, the safety of the therapy. So I started asking the question and pulling on these threads of what else makes us feel safe that's natural, that doesn't require you to really do anything to get the benefits. And the single thing that stood out were soothing music 
which you can just listen to and have on in the background. And most of our patients did that already. And the other one was soothing touch. And as I started to pull on that soothing touch thread, I realized that we are all not getting enough soothing touch. We're all not getting enough hugs and our patients were even more so. And so what did they do? They, they got service animals and pets and they tried to spend more time with their families and things. But mo- a lot of it was like pet based. And, and we saw that how powerful touch was at kind of restoring balance to their nervous system and boosting vagal tone and basically boosting activity in all the recovery response parts of the body and decreasing activity in the threat response parts of the body that were overactive in people who had had severe trauma. And then in the lab, we figured out, okay, well, we know that soothing music does what it does. What if we could compose music for the skin or for the body instead of the ears that felt like a hug or felt like holding a purring cat or a dog or felt like somebody you like holding your hand on a bad day? And when we experimented with that for a couple of years, we actually found it and it was possible. And not only was it possible, it was really effective. And it was effective in healthy people who had never been diagnosed with anything at improving heart rate variability. The first, Apollo is the first technology that just by putting it on, it improves your heart rate variability within minutes and it can improve your cognitive performance, your physical performance and recovery. And in our early studies, which you can find some of the data on our website, we're seeing very promising results for everything from eight, uh, people who are struggling with ADHD and PTSD. Uh, and now we have much bigger trials going on at the VA and at Michigan State University and many other uh, very, very uh, you know, world-renowned research organizations that are running studies of this because number one, while psychedelics are great and have incredible potential to heal people, They are extremely time intensive for the clinicians and the patients. They require a lot of effort. They're very expensive. And the only one that's legal right now is ketamine. And it is also expensive and it's not, and the ketamine therapy protocol where you do the psychotherapy with ketamine is actually pretty hard to find because only five or 10% of people nationwide who do ketamine therapy do it with the psychotherapy part, which is important as we talked about earlier. So to try to solve the access to care problem, we released this technology in January of 2020 as a wearable you can put anywhere in your body. It's used by children, it's used by adults, it's used by elderly folks, pregnant women, um, people who are struggling with postpartum depression and effectively veterans, sons of veterans. And anybody who's not a good candidate for medicine can literally just buy this and they can get some of the same benefits that, that people get in terms of felt safety in your body that helps to jumpstart the healing process we were talking about earlier. Well, and I think it's important to note that even those who are on medicines, this is something that can be a great supplement. And as I was saying with CBD, can give you some space for additional healing where you can start moving in that direction and taking a little bit more control about your health and making those decisions and saying, you know, I'm going to wear this. And, you know, it's it's a small step, you know, like, I mean, it's it's an important product, but like in terms of like, the self-empowerment. It's like, this is something I'm doing every day for my health to, you know, take control of that instead of just looking outside of me. Um, I mean, it's a device, but it's still something that you have to choose to do. I think it's, I think it's really fascinating, especially I've learned so much about just different frequencies and vibrations um, and how healing that they can be. And especially with children today, like that's, that's pretty much my whole mission is I'm terrified at the direction of the health of our children and 
as a quote unquote biohacker, I always sort of get on my rant being like, I don't really want to live to 180 if I'm going to have to watch the demise of our children's health. Um, So, you know, so many children today are struggling with attention disorders, anxiety. I think I saw earlier 30% of children from 18 to 25 um, have some sort of mental illness. One out of five people in America have some mental illness. I mean, it's just like having something at the ready that can help support you with your sleep, uh, with your energy, with your focus. You know, it's it seems like such a versatile device that's really, really effective. Um, one of the things that's also interesting is leaving it here. I got to send you, um, I'm going to send you some information on the acupuncture points that are right here because they're really powerful spiritual points also. They are. And, and that was actually a part of the original study was, you know, we realize it works anywhere, but there are certain parts of the body that actually work better than other parts. And um, the chest is one of them, the dense bony parts, the inside of the ankle, which is also a very important acupoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the wrist, the underside of the wrist is very important acupoint. Mm-hmm. And so there are certain parts of the body that work better. And I think what's really interesting about Apollo is it is a tool for that experiential learning and the control together. So it by itself, even in in double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials, people don't even know what vibrations they're getting. It still has an effect that's measurable in the lab within two to three minutes. So the effect is real, even if you have no idea what frequency you're getting, what vibration, or whether it's placebo or active or no vibration, the effect is real. It's real on performance. It's real on your cardiovascular health. It's real on your sense of calm. And that is unequivocal. We know that. And we know that with music too. So it's not, it's not foreign to us. It's still, if this is sound waves, just like the sound you listen to, it's just at a bass frequency that you feel more than you hear. But what's even more interesting is that when you are, especially as a child, when you're struggling with anything, we feel out of control of our, of the way we feel. And one of the single biggest things you can do for yourself that we, that, that ancient traditions teach is take control of your breath, right? In any moment, if you're feeling out of control, just focus on paying attention and, and to your breath and just feeling the air come into your nose, mouth, and lungs when you choose to take a breath and then feel it leaving when you choose to exhale. And that single act, which seems so simple, literally instantly, almost instantly grounds our minds back into our bodies and helps us to be present by reminding ourselves what we have control over. It's so simple. Anxiety itself is really just spending our precious time thinking, which we only have so much of, thinking about things we don't have control over. Then we feel out of control and then our anxiety goes through the roof. So if we just direct our attention to things we do have control over, which is like our breath and where all those body techniques come in and these tribal and Eastern techniques and probably a lot of the stuff you do, that is so powerful in and of itself. And so of course you don't need to use something like this, but for those of us who have never learned these somatic body techniques, who have never learned how to breathe properly, then we often are breathing rapidly and fast and we're, and we're you know, stressed out and overwhelmed a lot of the time in a lot of the things we were doing during the day. So you could be out like socializing with your friends and you start to realize you're feeling like restless and anxious. You start thinking about what other people are thinking about you when you're supposed to be having fun and enjoying yourself. And that's real unpleasant or worse yet, when you're about to get on stage to give a talk or a presentation. And then all of a sudden you 
all of a sudden you just notice the vibration of your Apollo and it's like, wait, I actually have the ability to feel calm in this moment. I don't even remember what that feels like, right? I can feel calm and in control in a situation that I only have associated with threat and, and anxiety in the past. And then all of a sudden, experiential learning, right? Your body's teaching our brains, I can feel calm now. So that means I have the, I have the power, right? I can do it. <laughs> it restores the healing right back to the center. Yeah, it's a choice. Well, and it's, I was reading the other day, there was just a statistic that said that a new neuropathway takes 200 repetitions before you form that neuropathway, but play will create the same pathway in 10 repetitions. So I feel like it's sort of similar when you're looking at that experiential learning where you're to the, to the play, because you're sort of, you're feeling that you're engaging in it, mind and body, and then you're able to get back to it and, and feel that pathway again, and sort of probably wire that pathway in your brain a bunch faster. Exactly. That's, and that's all learning. We, we talk about it in fancy terms like neuroplasticity and that kind of thing, which is real, but neuroplasticity is learning and it happens every moment of every day. So every time we decide to do the same thing the way we always did it, we're reinforcing that pathway and making it stronger. And every time we choose to do it a new way, we're learning a new way and we're rewiring our brains at every moment. What could be more powerful, right? And that recognition is like, we're, we're just constant learning machines and what we choose to allow in and to do with our allow in, meaning what we choose to pay attention to and what we choose to do, which is what we put our intention on where we output our human energy is literally what dictates and manifests our reality. What could be more powerful than that to understand? It's amazing. I love it. Um, yeah, I think I think the Apollo has such profound effects and I think it, it's so helpful for adults and for kids and kids like my son who, you know, is nonverbal and can't communicate a lot of things. And, you know, sometimes he's frustrated and we don't know why. So I can put that on him and it's like, you know, it's like a blanket of calm. Um, but there, you know, I was just at a, a, a conference for his disorder and I was just watching all of the kids just eating junk food and so dysregulated. And like, I've always just want to like grab them and hug them, um, which is part of what the Apollo actually does. Uh, but all right, I think we're running out of time. So I am going to call it here but thank you so much it's been so much fun talking to you it's it's amazing how much you have accomplished and how many different pathways you're going and it's really really been a fun conversation so thank you so much for your time it's my pleasure thanks so much for having me of course thank you for listening to the radical remedy podcast the Radical Remedy podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-slash-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.